Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Because presidential primaries are held sequentially, people are in the field and they don't have the, the results they wanted in Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire, like, like you back in 2020. Like you had a lot of people who were excited to vote for Andrew Yang and they voted for you in California or Washington State or what have you, and you were no longer an active candidate, but they had already voted. We had actually three million votes that were cast for candidates who had dropped out by the time they were counted. And almost all of them were cast by someone who thought the person was still running, and then by the time they were counted, they no longer were. So early voting, which creates more access, also creates a lot more chance for basically lost votes. And so ranked voting would be just a very straightforward way to, to give those voters a, a backup, you know, a second or, or third choice. So that's a really logical reason for it. It's also these crowded fields are very common. And I think the idea of rewarding a candidate that brings people together is particularly valuable for presidential elections. It is my pleasure to welcome the co-founder, president, and CEO of FairVote, Mr. Rank Choice Voting himself, Rob Ritchie. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Andrew, and right back at you for all the leadership you've provided for the Rank Choice Voting cause over the last couple of years, so thank you. I mean, it's awfully generous because you've been at this since way before RCV was cool, not to put pressure on you, but you co-founded FairVote. 30 years ago, is that right? Yep, 1992. And for uh, people who are at least older than 35 or something, they may remember that that was the year that Ross Perot ran for president, got 18% of the vote running as an independent, and really cr created a conversation about what that means in our political system. And we were working with a guy named John Anderson, who had run for president in 1980, and he had an op-ed in the New York Times in the first month of our existence saying it was time to change our presidential elections to rank choice voting. So we've been at it for a long time. Yeah, so 30 years ago, uh, uh, what the heck were you doing where you were like, okay, now I'm going <laughs> to start this, this voting org? Well, I wasn't in elementary school, but I was in my 20s, and, uh, and I had been kind of a explorer of how I, as a young man, could have the impact I sought to have on what I felt was a lot of uh, challenges for the, United, for the United States and the world, particularly around ecological challenges. I actually had done a special issue of an environmental newsletter out in Washington State about the, the, the challenge of climate change way back in 91, and, and was, was, had kind of come to the idea of voting in politics as a way that, with changes, could you know, uh, galvanize government to actually be an ally for the changes that, that we needed. And that in turn led to a conversation and, and exploration of why it didn't do so now. And, and, and no and, way and, you started and, out as a climate activist. I that, was a that, climate activist bef 
before, not before also before Al it War, was cool. Before, <laughs> before he did his book Earth and the Balance, yeah, no, then and that that was a real concern throughout my my twenties. Um, you know, the ozone layer and and tropical deforestation and just like these these issues about sort of like destruction of the the underpinnings of the planet. I did my uh, thesis in college about environmental ethics and about sort of what we can do about that. And so that. That was not political, but my wife, uh, Cynthia, was involved in politics, sort of dragged me into politics, got me intrigued with what elections could be. And yeah, the the idea of changing the, the electoral system, ranked choice voting, changing winner-take-all elections to some kind of proportional representation became like really exciting ideas for me. And I reached out pre-internet, writing letters and things to people and um, connected with a, a core of people. And we... Uh, Ultimate came together and founded this effort in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1992. Uh, so let's fast forward to today because I feel like ranked choice voting and fair vote are enjoying a bit of a moment. Uh, people are figuring out, wait a minute, our voting system right now disproportionately empowers folks who may not actually uh, have the best interests of, of the public at heart or might not even represent, uh, frankly, the mainstream of, of their community. Uh, so Fair Vote now is a multi-million dollar organization. It, it, it has been instrumental in helping ranked choice voting achieve a ton of victories uh, this past election day. It has. And we have a lot of friends and allies helping us do it, which is new as well. So for like the first 25 years, we didn't only work on ranked choice voting. We, that was a centerpiece along with changing to some kind of proportional representation. Those were like the two foundational pillars of our reform. But we worked on electoral college reform. We actually catalyzed the, the idea that we could have an automatic voter registration system. The idea like systemic solutions to voting problems was sort of the ethos. But we did have this, this work on, on righteous voting. And in the aughts, in like the 2000s, we had a string of really valuable city wins. San Francisco, Minneapolis, Pierce County, Washington, you know, about 10, 15 cities voted and passed ranked choice voting. And we were in part of almost all of those. And then we had like a couple setbacks. There was sort of a stalling of the effort. And then in 2016, it passed in Maine statewide. It was a really exciting effort. There was a really strong local uh, state group that did that. We were the main outside group to be helpful to it. That kind of just combined with, I think, the challenges to our democracy that we were experiencing at uh, a lot of us were, 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 were seeing really triggered a whole new set of players coming in and groups getting involved. And we sort of begin to settle into a place where, you know, different people are doing different things, I think really leaning into their strengths. So this year, Nevada passed ranked choice voting statewide, the same model that it was used in a really impactful way in uh, Alaska that we can talk about. And that was one where we provided a certain kind of, you know, policy expertise, but that was really driven by other people. And hats off to to the uh, state group that did that, to the Institute for Political, uh, Political Innovation that Catherine Gale runs, um, Unite America, Arnold Ventures, big investors in it, provide a lot of expertise. They raised a ton of money. They won a really groundbreaking win. We did a lot more with the city efforts. It was on the ballot in nine cities, and it passed in seven of them, cities and counties. And, wait, um, wait what, what were the two misses? Because I know, wait, list the yeah, there, there seven wins and then the two oh, misses. We've got to focus on the misses. Yeah, there were a couple of counties in Washington State where a charter commission had, had recommended it. And um, I think what we feel in retrospect is the charter commission got a, a little ahead of the community, so it was like a good idea for that county. 
but there wasn't the infrastructure of support ready to kind of pivot into a campaign. So it did lose those two counties, but it won in uh, Seattle, it won in Portland, Oregon, and won in the biggest county in Oregon called Multnomah. It, it won in a, a sprinkling of other cities, Fort Collins, Colorado, Evanston, Illinois, and um, all of them had like really good local campaigns that were associated with, usually with state groups that have emerged over the last five, six years. So we now have groups in more than 40 states. You've got valuable national players, like a group called the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center that helps on election administration. And you've got my wife's group, Represent Women, which talks about what this means for women in, in representation. You've got groups like United America, Represent Us, and you know, like, like different players doing, doing valuable things. And um, so Fair Vote is, I think, a foundational group within that as, as a particular, sure. particularly valuable source of policy expertise, advocacy insights, and um, the ability to kind of like make sure that we're covering all the bases. So like if it's on the ballot in a bunch of cities, we're, we're being attentive to trying to make sure that they're all getting the resources and uh, support that they need. And that's, by the way, for anyone watching, it's not easy to just jump in and win ranked voting in a state. It's not super easy to do it in a city. It's possible, though. It's that Margaret Mead quote of just a handful of people can come together and um, identify an opportunity and, and, and nurture it and actually can often create the conditions for a success. So we're hoping that we can go from about the 60 cities that are using RCV now to some version of 500 within three or four years while we also make progress higher up. But that's something we all can be part of. You, you, not every state can do it, but or, you know, not every state allows their cities to do it, but a lot of them do, and it's something that's uh, kind of an exciting way that, that people can explore getting involved. So what Rob is saying is that if you aren't uh, volunteering in your community <laughs> to make Rank Choice Voting happen, there's an opportunity. You can do it. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. There's a rank the vote or pro uh, RCV organization uh, grassroots effort in a lot of different places. Um, and they, they have, frankly, a winning argument just about everywhere they go. <laughs> because uh, when people dig into it, it's like, wait, okay, uh, my vote will 
be more representative of what I really think. There's no more spoiler effect. It encourages positive campaigning and discourages negative campaigning. It gets rid of runoffs, which they're, they're very expensive uh, and time-consuming and energy-consuming. I mean, we're seeing that in Georgia right now. So there are so many pros to it. Uh, it reduces polarization. It rewards uh, reasonableness. And then the, the cons, what are the cons, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> Since you spent all your time championing this. Well, I think that ranked choice voting is an electoral change that's kind of like in your face, in, in a sense. Like some changes are sort of subterranean. Like you change the voter registration system and, you know, maybe it helps you get registered when you move into a state, but you don't really notice that as a big change, right? It just happens. And you can... Look at redistricting, and, and the lines are drawn differently in a, a fairer way, and you might experience it being different, but sort of indirectly. Like, it's not like you see the lines carved out on the landscape or something. Ranked voting, the ballot is different. Like, you suddenly are doing something quite different. You're being able to rank, which, by the way, is quite empowering. You're no longer limited to just a single tick on the box, right? You're say, here's my first choice, and, hey, I have a second choice. Here's my third choice. That's different, but it also is something you have to explain to people, and, like, how are those rankings going to be used? Like, you know, so, so, so there's like an educational um, issue, not how to rank, but, but what it means to rank, right? Like, like that's, that's the biggest thing you need to work on. And the candidates, um, you know, you ran for mayor in, in New York City in the system. The candidates themselves need to like learn how to do this and embrace it or, or you know, not feel they lost because of it because they didn't know how to kind of run a good ranked choice voting campaign, which, by the way, the secret Which is, is really the shorthand is just try not to be an asshole, but continue. Like, yeah, that, yeah that, <laughs> and just talk to more people and listen to them. Like, that, exactly, right. That's, that's the big secret. But some people think it's, you know, they, they get the wrong thing. Then the, the, then, then the results look different, right? So, so, so you get the results, you get a first choice count, and then, oh, no one wins a majority, and then you do the instant runoff to determine the winner, and the results look different, and say you're really invested in the outcome, and the results change because of the system. You're like, how did that happen, right? So, so you, there, there's a transitional uh, demand with ranked choice voting, which, once done, I think settles into a new reality that people are, are going to love and appreciate, and, um, but there is a Work, work you need to do during that transition time that I think is associated with what I guess could be seen as downsides, which is, you know, you have to teach people new, new ways of voting and understanding results. But, hey, that's, that's in some ways just a better form of democracy takes, takes, takes some learning. Um, and, and it's very yeah, intuitive, think, Rob. I mean, uh, you know, one of the jokes I tell is that uh, I've got two boys who are 10 and 7, and they can rank their favorites, one, two, three, pretty straightforwardly. Uh, and, and so when I was in Nevada, uh, voters were getting text messages that frankly struck me as kind of scare tactics where they were like, vote no on three because it's going to be too confusing and cumbersome. Right, 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 right. <laughs> like, like, that's like the, the main argument. Yeah, no, yeah, it's confusing and cumbersome. And then also a transitional thing is um, we have a very – uh, inertia-oriented electoral uh, sort of election equipment regime, right? So when it, it so we have like here we are in the United States of America, like cutting-edge technology, all kinds of things that are really, you know, moving us forward. And the way we actually count ballots on machines is sort of this stodgy, regulated, poorly administered. You know, I mean, people are trying to do good good work within it, but but basically it's not very responsive to a change. So that when you bring in a new system like ranked voting, you have to come up with new processes. 
that are straightforward technologically to do and to do it very securely, very transparently, but you have to work within a regime like, say, the New York City Board of Elections, which doesn't handle it as well as they could if, if they were run in a different kind of way. And that's, that's, um, that's, part, of, that's part of a challenge for us, too. So we, there was a snafu in the reporting of New York City, um, but let, let's get specific. So uh, what proportion of these cities or districts that adopt ranked choice voting need new machines? Like, can their current machines actually read a ranked ballot? Yeah, and that wasn't true for much of our history, right? So we would, like, get the political cell. Like, people say, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do this, right? And so way in the late 90s, we had, like, statewide conversations going on in, like, Alaska and New Mexico and Vermont, but their machines couldn't do it at that time. So then you say, it's a great idea. Oh, and the price tag is going to be you have to get new voting equipment. And that would sort of squash the, the interest. So then you just had to plow ahead, get your opening wins, get that inertia-bound regime to start changing. And now almost every voting equipment can do ranked choice voting in form, some form or another. Some can do it really well. So like, say, uh, Utah cities, uh, uh, 20 cities in Utah used ranked choice voting last year, and they all had election night ranked choice voting tallies where you could see the status of the race. They still had to count some more ballots coming in, you know, for the next day or two or three. But you, could, you already could see the first ranked choice voting tallies. They, they showed the results nicely. And that was with two of the biggest uh, different voting equipment was used there. And it's just, um, we, we're, we're basically closing out that barrier very quickly. So we're at, at a point very soon where I think pretty much every community will, will be able to do ranked choice voting efficiently and well. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. The goal is to get to 500-ish cities over the next uh, three years. Um, I yeah, think five hundred cities. We like ten statewide uses of ranked choice voting. Ooh, I like that. And, and conversations in Congress. Those those are our three big kind of advocacy oriented goals. Like serious conversations in Congress. Uh, so you mentioned Alaska earlier. 
Um, so Maine makes a change in 2016. Alaska makes a change in 2020, which means that this was the first cycle. Uh, and you saw very dramatic results uh, where uh, Mary Peltola beat Sarah Palin, in my mind, largely because of the nonpartisan primary and ranked choice voting process. Lisa Murkowski uh, beats a Trump-endorsed challenger that, in my mind, was strictly because of the nonpartisan primary. If it had just been Republicans, Kelly Shabaka defeats Lisa Murkowski, and then you have like a Kelly Shabaka, uh, you know, likely victory. Um, but it, it sounds like it's had even more profound effects in terms of the way the the state legislature is now organized. Yeah, it's fascinating. Alaska is a really, in some ways, an ideal state to be modeling this form of ranked choice voting. It's majority independent. Um, and while if you just look at the simplistic definition of how it votes for president, oh, it's just a red state, it's like an independent state, right? So they, they had an independent elected as governor in 2014. They had a, a third-party governor in the 90s. They have... Uh, They've had actually their legislative chambers for the last several years, at least one of the chambers, has had a bipartisan coalition running it. So there's a history of the parties kind of figuring things out in a more independent way, and the voters reflect that, right? So, so that they're, they're not simplistic, just one side or the other, and which is why someone like Lisa Murkowski has been able to, to win there, even though she lost the Republican primary way back in 2010, and then she won as a write-in after after Crazy. Who the hell wins um, a write-in? Lisa yeah. Murkowski. Well, Murkowski, right. And um, so this year, the state Senate, which has 20 seats, uh, this open primary system. So this form of ranked choice voting, everyone votes in the primary for one person, and they're all running together, right? So all the candidates appear before you. You vote for one, and the top four candidates advance. And that's when you use ranked choice voting in the, this final vote with four people. And you can put a write-in if, if you feel that none of those four people really are your top choice. And then, uh, but then use ranked choice voting. So it's a much more kind of open process where the general election electorate, which is bigger, more full, they're making the final call. So of the 20 seats, 17 people, about equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans, have come together to form a governing coalition. So there's only three people three Republicans, including the former Senate Majority Leader, who just didn't want to work across the aisle, who are off on one side. And basically, these other 17 are going to carve out committees together, kind of work on a budget together, and, you know, have a supermajority to do things together. They will be certainly a firewall with any legislative effort that might be sparked to try to change the system. We now have, a, like, a group of people that want to keep, this, keep the current kind of electoral system. And... Um, Really remarkable. The House is having similar conversations. It's, it's more divided, so they may not have such a coalition, but they might. And um, it's fascinating to see what that means for governing, right? Because right? that's an expression of let's, let's take the big hot-button issues off the table. Let's work on things together that we all agree on. And there's some things that Alaska needs to do together, right? Because, you know, it's a state that has a lot of uh, demands. It's a huge state, a rural state, um, you know, a lot of things it needs to, to, to do well. And it now has a, you know, a state Senate at least. And the incentives for the other people in, in the system to try to try to work together to get things done. Uh, people listening to this, imagine if the state reps in your state just got together and said, hey, 85% of us are going to form a governing coalition. <laughs> right. <laughs> It'd be a very, very different sides, animal. Right, right. And, and, and the thing that's interesting, Andrew, is actually our committee structure historically, before we became as sort of hyper-partisan as we have, 
the committees themselves, like within Congress, function that way in a sense. So, so a committee would have Democrats and Republicans, an occasional independent, but basically Democrats and Republicans, and they would develop legislation getting input from both sides. Rarely did one side just jam something through, right? So there was like, you become expert in a committee, your expertise is respected, you have hearings, you develop legislation somewhat together, right? And, and so we actually have a history of that kind of cooperation kind of emerging, even within a structure that didn't actually have a formal um, coalition at the, at, at, at the highest level. And we've just gotten we've we've gotten away from that. So so legislation is much more likely to be developed just by one side, often just by leadership, and it's and it's it's and then then you get all these floor votes where just one party votes for it and the other votes against it, and, and it's sort of like a different world than what we actually historically have had. So in some ways, what Alaska is doing is is creating incentives to bring back a certain way of working together to uh, get things done. Oh yeah, man, it's like a freaking. Um call back to some earlier Wobegon <laughs> long ago era where like the parties weren't uh, at each other's throats and people actually just sat down and were like, Hey, well, you know, what do you think would work? So you mentioned a goal of 10 States using ranked choice voting over the next several years. Right now we've got Maine, Alaska, Nevada just passed it, though they'll have to pass it again. Um, I- I'm going to throw Arizona on the table because I was just there and there are some folks in Arizona that are, very eager uh, to follow in Nevada's footsteps. What other states do you see as being on the potential, I'm not going to hold you to it, uh, list to try and get to 10? Well, here's the, the caveat to what I was saying. I think we get to 10 by not only winning uh, sweeping victories. Basically, there are narrower victories that one can do. I'd, you obviously ran for president as a Democrat. You were experienced a very crowded field in that Democratic field. Um, four states that year, the, the party themselves, the Democratic Party, ran their own contests and used ranked choice voting ballots for that. That was Kansas, Alaska, Wyoming, and Hawaii. So those states did ranked choice voting contests. Now, Maine has now voted to pass ranked choice voting for presidential primaries. Maine does it for everything now or all federal races, but that was a state legislative action to add it to presidential Great. primaries. And so we'd like to see several more states move toward using ranked choice voting for presidential primaries as an important, logical, helpful way to use ranked choice voting. And that could be several states. And there's that, that conversation is happening in, in several of them. At the same time, you could have these Nevada, Alaska, exciting type ballot measures. And I won't name names, actually, but... There are, you know, two, three, four states that people are looking at. But, you know, we have a relatively small field of initiative states. So that's where, you know, people can look on a map and see where the initiative states are. And at least there's a chance to have a conversation for that. And people are eyeballing what's what's possible right now. Well, one state that's a legislative state uh, where it's very much front and center now is Connecticut because uh, Governor Ned Lamont came out and said, I'm for ranked choice voting. And so now we're going to see what the bill looks like. Exactly. Um, the, the forward party folks in Connecticut uh, are trying to, to make sure, frankly, it passes. <laughs> yeah, no, that was super exciting. And it's a way that third parties um, can really, you know, create a conversation and they certainly did in Connecticut, and I think there is it's an actionable follow-up to get some progress toward ranked choice voting. Now, whether it's all the way or whether it's, say, just as a start for something like presidential primaries, 
we'll um, have to see. But but that's some ways getting a first step is actually huge because you you then get the state having it in place. So Maine used ranked choice voting at first for all primaries for state and congressional office, and then the general election for Congress, but it didn't use it for president. They had one use of it in 2018, and the legislature said, well, that worked pretty well. And then they passed it for presidential elections, both general and, you know, so once, once you get, get a proof of concept, you, you, you have a, a greater option and opportunity to, to take it to the next level. Yeah, that's one reason I'd love having it pass in cities, because as soon as a city uses it, then it demystifies it, everyone loves it, it's easy, and everyone's like, okay, especially if it's a big city in a state. And then when the state then is considering it, you've got, frankly, a lot of people who are just totally used to it and just say, say like, obviously, we should be using ranked choice voting. So when you talk about a state adopting ranked choice voting in a presidential primary, is that state law or is that something the party uh, itself can adopt? Like, could yeah. the Democrats of Iowa just decide, hey, we're going to use RCV? Right. Well, there's a handful of states where the party does its own contest, like Iowa. And, of course, Iowa had a, a little bit of challenge back in 2020 under the DNC regime. Um, and uh, that's an example of a state that could look at ranked choice voting totally driven by the party. But that's only a handful of states. So most states, you know, basically there's 43 states where it has to be done by state legislature. And then the party has to agree to use it. So there's kind of like a dance between party and state and um, but I think if a state passes a law to set it up, the parties are, are likely to use it because it really does. It's better for them. You know, it's better. You know, they, they, they get a better nominee. They, they make make more votes count. I'll, I'll give an ex specific example of why it's catching on for presidential primaries is because presidential primaries are held sequentially. People are in the field and they don't have the, the results they wanted in Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire like like you back in 2020. Like you had a lot of people who were excited to vote for Andrew Yang and they voted for you in California or Washington State or what have you and you were no longer an active candidate but they had already voted. We had actually three million votes that were cast for candidates who had dropped out by the time they were counted and almost all of them were cast by someone who thought the person was still running and then by the time they were counted they no longer were. So early voting, which creates more access, also creates a lot more chance for basically lost votes. And so ranked voting would be just a very straightforward way to, to give those voters a, a backup, you know, a second or, or third choice. So that's a really logical reason for it. It's also these crowded fields are very common. And I think the idea of, of rewarding a candidate that brings people together is particularly valuable for presidential elections. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. So it sounds like it's up for state law in in most of these cases. You embarked on this journey 30 years ago thinking, hey, we should run presidential elections via ranked choice voting. Uh, what are the steps we would need to take? Because uh, I've been saying for a while, 
um, we could be staring at a Trump-Biden rematch. And a lot of Americans would look up saying like, hey, like, what are my other choices? <laughs> and then the, the major counterargument right now is like, oh, if anyone else runs, it's going to spoil it for one party or the other, Ralph Nader effect, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what do we need to do to actually make it so Americans could have multiple choices in a presidential election? Well, so we talked about the presidential primaries. For the general election, currently, that's all done state by state, right? So Maine now uses ranked choice voting for president. So in Maine, in 2020, you know, people ranked candidates, and there was like a Green Party candidate, there was a Libertarian candidate, and uh, Joe Biden uh, actually got more than half the votes, so those, the ballot didn't need to kind of kick in to the second choices, but those People could vote for the Green and Libertarian and, and not worry about the quote-unquote spoiler effect. So that's something that each state can do on its own, just using ranked choice voting within the state. There is um, fun ideas. In fact, I wrote a long article for the, the Harvard Law and Policy Journal about how you could combine state action on ranked choice voting with state action toward the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact Plan that is established as, as a way to effectively have states unite to... Um, create a national popular vote for president. And they, they actually could could build um, ranked choice voting on top of that. Um, and there's sort of laid that out. But that's 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 a way that you effectively could actually have a state-driven process that that allows states to to be part of a national popular vote for president. If we ever want a, a, a truly united states of America election, <laughs> um, we would need a constitutional amendment um, to kind of lock in that we'll have a national popular vote. And that would be the time to have a conversation about how to have the method of election for president as we change the Constitution. You you can do it with the national popular vote plan, sort of state by state, or you could sort of do it, do do a, do a kind of this, you know, constitutional change, which is, I don't think we're very close to doing, and, and but that is, that's where you theoretically could do it. One thing that's interesting, when you look at all the presidential elections around the world, and we, a lot of countries have prime ministers who, who come out of the legislature, but there are a number of states, or countries rather, that, that vote directly for president. Pretty much all of them do require a majority, and most of them do a runoff election, but like, say, Ireland has, has ranked choice voting for president. And uh, but but that idea of upholding majority rule that you should get at least half the votes to become you know the chief executive is a general principle that's out there, and I think that that conversation is is an important one for us to have, and partly why we should have ranked choice voting state by state for governors as well, right? It's like we should make sure that the folks who are you know in that important position of power uh, have done the work necessary to earn majority support. Yeah, who the heck wants someone who didn't get 50% of the vote? You know what I mean? Like, and I mean, uh, that, that's one of the reasons why Maine adopted it is that you had uh, Governor LePage win without 50% of the vote. And they looked around and said, well, that's not cool. <laughs> yeah, they, they'd had actually three consecutive governors, one Democrat, one Republican, and one independent. So conveniently, like, each side got, got, a, got, a, got a chance to win with less than 40%, right? So wow. they were winning like 38, 36, or whatever. And um, at least one of those pretty definitively would not have won in a head-to-head contest. And uh, that created a conversation. So it wasn't surprising that Maine was the first state to pass it. So it sounds like for the presidential, you have this uh, constitutional amendment approach uh, for a national election, um, or just you get a bunch of states on board. So it's already in effect uh, in Maine. Um, and so if you had enough states adopt it, um, and certainly I'm, I'm very, very excited about the state-by-state approach. 
one thing I, I do want to get into for a minute is how the heck Connecticut's governor wound up endorsing ranked choice voting. So I tell jokes about this, Rob. I said, like, did he just wake up and say, oh, this is a good idea? Of course not. I mean, that's not the way political figures make these sorts of decisions. He made the decision because he wanted to win his race against a Republican. And they realized that uh, there was a ballot line called the Griebel Frankfurt for Connecticut line that their consultant said was worth about 3% in the general election, whoever was endorsed by the Griebel Frank party. And so how the heck did the Griebel Frank party get that ballot line in Connecticut? Uh, because they ran for governor in 2018 and got 4% of the vote, which is above a threshold to get this ballot line. Now, Connecticut is a fusion voting state, which means that you you can have uh, another party have its line. Um, but the same kind of political calculation could apply in any state where it became a winning issue, where if you knew that you were going to get even 2 or 3% uh, of voters to vote for you because you endorsed ranked choice voting, in Connecticut, both the Democratic and the Republican candidates for governor wound up endorsing it because they were just trying to win. So one of the things that Connecticut demonstrates is that if you have a political interest in being for these reforms, then it can become a winning issue. Yeah, no, it, it was really intriguing and exciting and I think shows the value of having priorities, essentially, right? You know, and, and the leverage that comes with that, right? So, so that if any group of people can prioritize an issue such that they can say, we are going to prioritize this and our votes are going to reflect it, if it's a good idea or a reasonable idea, you can find people to listen to. Because they are, you know, even though we don't have ranked voting, like Governor Lamont is in a, was in a, essentially, a, you know, functionally a head-to-head race and and needed to figure out how, how, how to win a majority. And he needed to kind of like, grow, you know, get up to over 50%. And then where you start saying, hey, I'm I'm only 4%, but I'm part of your 50%. You, uh, you should listen to what I care about. And that's sort of part of what a good elected official, a good candidate needs to always be doing, right, is, is like essentially thinking of these these voters as a, they have a myriad of interests, but I'm willing to kind of like be a coalitional candidate, bringing them together. And that's what politics really often is. And it's okay to be that way. And, and I think the Connecticut uh, example is just a really clear dramatization of that. All right, Rob. So here's an idea where we do it nationwide. Check it out. The 2020 presidential election gets decided by maybe 70,000 votes in four states. Uh, and the 2024 race will probably be similar. So the four swing states uh, that everyone knows are going to be very, very close are Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Those things are probably going to be within a percent. And then if you were to expand it a little bit to 2%, you end up including Pennsylvania and Michigan. Right. Uh, so not what, very many, by the way, <laughs> just, yeah, no, no, it, it shows how messed up our system is yeah, like 44 yeah. states. Ah, you're baked six states, you know, maybe might swing one direction or another. So they have all the power and the political ads. They can look forward to that. Um, but let's imagine that you got a coalition of, oh, let's say 500,000 independents or swing voters in those six states, uh, to say, we are going to back whichever, presidential candidate comes out for nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting 
Uh, and maybe let's throw it in there, the Fair Representation Act, which you and I can talk uh, uh, about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you could get this fulcrum because our country is so polarized and our system is so dumb. <laughs> Honestly, uh, you could make it a winning issue in the 2024 presidential race between the two major parties. Call it five and six, which just stands for five percent in six swing states. What do you think? I think that is a potent concept. You just have to find if, if you can find those if you if you can find the voters, you can find five percent, probably even three percent, but hey, five percent's all the better, who agree to prioritize that. And it's it's really challenging for a lot of people because they can say, Well, I really love these issues, but I care about something else that's associated with that party, you know, their views on abortion rights or climate change or, you know, uh, economic issues of a certain kind, right? Like, like you have to essentially say, I'm going to make, for this election, make those secondary. I'm going to vote based on these priorities because if we can make this change, it'll make a change in our politics that'll allow me to be able to do forever after much more of what I want about all the other things that I care about. So, so if you can persuade people to do that, it would be very powerful, right? It would be, it would be a foolish candidate who essentially said no, as particularly, I think those issues are good issues. Like, obviously I'm, I'm biased, but, but, but I, but I think those issues are ones that voters would appreciate a candidate being for, right? It, it, it's, it is a kind of a voter's first agenda, right? Which is like that candidate is standing up for voters, doing the right thing. Um, and these 5% of people are, are now going to vote for them, which, you know, if, if, if you do the math, if they're not all from one side, right, if they sort of like include some people who might vote Republican and some people who might vote Let's Democrat, say half and half even, ideally. Which, that would be the powerful thing, right? If you truly have a certain set of swing people, that would mean that whoever makes that position, if only one of them does, is getting this boost, which given the way our politics is, that's a huge boost. Yeah, very powerful. So Asian Americans are 9.1% of the uh, electorate in Nevada, 4.4% in Georgia. So those are two states, 3% in the other states. Uh, and they, they tend to be a very uh, pragmatic group. Uh, so non-ideological as well. Um, so I, I think you could make this happen. Um, and I, I may be spending a significant amount of time and energy making this happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I think Five and six. Yeah, no, five and six. That's uh, that that that's five and six and twenty-four. Yeah, that that that, that yeah. Dude, the math will have we'll, we'll have to work that out. You, I could be four and six and twenty-four, and then it would all like be like a sort of like a product. Oh my gosh, you're right. Because the the fact is, you're right that five percent uh, isn't even necessary. I mean, these margins yeah. are so four percent. Like, if it's evenly divided, that does it. Like like if you got two percent Republican leaning, two percent Democratic leaning, that that's enough. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So right, right now, people are looking around saying, okay, uh, our, our democracy is 
not functioning so well. Uh, Congress has a satisfaction rate of 22% last I checked. Um, but you have these single-member districts, and that even if you were to open it up via ranked choice voting, um, the fact is a lot of the time you'd still wind up with a Democrat or Republican winning. But there is a way to a more actually representative system. And it's a bill sitting in Congress right now. It's called the Fair Representation Act, and Rob and Fair Vote have been all for it. Yeah, no, it is a truly exciting idea. Statutory, just an act just an act of Congress, but it is something that Congress has the right to do under the Constitution. They have control of time, place, and manner of, of uh, congressional elections. And interestingly, uh, over in the early part of the American history, um, states had at-large elections for Congress, a um, number of them. They, they were allowed to under the Constitution, and they said, well, let's not have single-member districts. Let's just run statewide. As the parties took shape, particularly in the 1830s, that began to mean one party would just win all the seats, right? Because they, they, it was like New Jersey or something would have a statewide election and one party would have a few more votes than the other, but the voters would just vote them all in. And so, so it, it became understood kind of as an unfair approach um, to have these sort of at-large elections. So back in the 1840s, Congress, using its constitutional powers, mandated single-member districts. So you had to have one person per district. And um, interestingly, that was just at the time when the very first books, literally, were coming out to say, hey, there's a different ways of having elections. You can use different, different approaches. And there's a kind of a whole family of systems that are generally called proportional representation. But it's, it's sort of a loose term that describes basically something where one side doesn't win all. There, there's some way for more of us to have access to representation. And there's a whole range of ways to do it. As other countries, just in the latter part of the 1800s, were sort of starting to establish their systems, they were aware of this thinking and different models, and almost all of them actually didn't use winner-take-all single-member districts. They used some kind of system which wasn't one side winning all. Because there's, when you think about what a representative legislature should be, sort of like antithetical to representation to have a whole lot of people not get representation. And we have had a conversation at the city level. There are actually a number of communities in the United States that don't use winner-take-all elections. And they, they're, they're these systems, there's a system called cumulative voting, which is used in a bunch of Texas cities and a few ones in Alabama and so, so on. There's, there, there's, there's others. There's this one that's based on ranked choice voting. Actually just passed on the ballot in Portland, Oregon. So Portland, Oregon is now moving to this system and will use it in 2024. And in the Portland system, rather than having one person represent each neighborhood, They'll have sort of somewhat bigger districts, and they'll have three people. So you have more than one representative, have, and then, but it's not winner-take-all, so that you rank the candidates, like a typical ranked choice ballot, and then your goal is to use that ranked choice ballot to have as many people as possible help elect someone. The math of it works out that about three-quarters of people can reliably elect their favorite candidate or one of their favorite candidates in every such election. And, and you apply that math to Congress. So if we could do this at a congressional level, so Congress is the power, and the Fair Representation Act would be an expression of how to do this. Establishing districts of like three or four, maybe up to five seats, that, that's the current way that the bill is set up. You would rank the candidates just like you do in Alaska and Maine, but the, the tally would be adjusted to basically try to have as many people as possible help elect someone. And um, you would have no part of the country where there's more, at least three representatives, where likely one party would win all the seats. So you go to like the bluest of blues, like, you know, 
New York City or the reddest of reds in, you know, rural Texas or something, and you would have both parties having the electoral It would just power, be two electoral. or three Dems and one Republican or, like, or vice versa. Exactly. Some degree of openness, and the Dems and Republicans would have differences within them. But furthermore, if you're an independent or a third-party candidate, you're never a spoiler, right? You put your best foot forward, and now you no longer need 50% to win. You can get in with maybe 20%, 25%, so that you can make your best case. You can try to win with that percentage. And if you don't win, your second choices matter. And they all know that, right? And every and all, all the candidates have to be nimble and building coalitions. And um, so it just would mean that you'd have an elected body that has shared representation, shared interests in actually serving their constituents together. When they retreat to their party caucuses, the whole country stays in the room. And it's just a different way of doing politics that is within statutory reach. And that's, if, 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 if we could uh, add that to, to our mix, I think we would have to do so much for Congress. And by the way, create a whole pool of candidates who could run for Senate having better reflected the spectrum and be, and often yeah. run statewide. Yeah. Our current system is so underrepresentative when, uh, essentially, if you're in a red state, uh, let's call it Missouri for fun. Um, Missouri is still probably, you know, has like millions of Democrats. You, they're just nowhere to be found. And they're the officials, they said, to, um, to Washington. Um, so the Fair Representation Act would allow for actual representation um, and it would allow for different perspectives and probably some minor parties to break through. So yep. you'd have some group of members of Congress who aren't D or R, which, by the way, would be a godsend in uh, this political climate because, yep. uh, uh, you know, that that would be uh, a lot of what uh, Americans want. I, I think one of the the supplements to this is that we have too few members of Congress relative to the population uh, where uh, I think there was something like 80,000 Americans per representative, uh, you know, when they started. And then now that number is uh, up to 900,000 or something ridiculous. And we last we used to change the size of the House every 10 years, every 10 years, without exception. Then in 1910, they didn't do it. They, they couldn't come to an agreement. So then we went 20 years with the same number. And then they just said, OK, let's just keep that number. So that was like 100 years ago, over 100 years ago. Our population has tripled since then. So every district is now three times bigger than, than it used to be. So we definitely are ripe for a conversation about adding members, and they do go very well together. The Fair Representation Act, last I checked, had maybe half a dozen co-sponsors or something along those lines. And everyone who's behind the Fair Representation Act is awesome. Uh, yes. Because if you're behind it, then, you know, like you're enlightened. <laughs> and there's some, yeah, there's some great folks. And I think it's a latent issue that I think will grow in support as we have more of a conversation about. It. And this is a way that people can definitely help by just giving a heads up to, the, to their member about this idea. So whenever they're like saying, oh, I'm just so frustrated with, with gerrymandering, which they have every right to be frustrated with gerrymandering. This is like a comprehensive universal fix, right? For yeah, yeah. Right. You know, you just made a super district, and then like you, you know, you can't really draw it any funky way. Exactly, that you the do voters with, like, the... are in charge everywhere, right? It, it's yeah. just a whole different thing. Yeah.
Yeah, the Fair, Fair Representation Act is the closest thing to a silver bullet. Uh, and most people don't understand it. Well, I tried to explain it to my wife um, the other day, and she got it. You know, I mean, she's very smart, but it took me a little while. Yeah, it's my fault. Not, 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 not we'll work and work with you on the tools to how to talk about because it. it is so exciting, but it is something we need to get down to. Uh, you know, a bumper sticker that I guess is more than the name, but we have to be able to sort of say, yeah, you know, you rank the candidates and. It's bigger districts and you know like like it's you know and it's like it's a representation like it's a pie and you sort of cut the slices and you know whatever we'll 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 work on our you and i will workshop it together (laughs) um i genuinely uh do think that all of this energy momentum is now gathering around you rob and fair vote hope you hope you feel good uh you know i mean you've been working on this for literally decades uh what are you most excited about upcoming and how can people help Exciting one, as I said earlier, it's now not just fair vote, right? So there are all kinds of ways to get involved and great allies to work with. And I really like the way we're working together with you know with you and and the people involved in the Ford Party and uh, who are really doing a great job talking about this issue. And you know, groups like Rank the Vote and these state groups that are emerging almost everywhere. If you go to Fair Vote Action, of which you are a board member. Yes, board member Fair Vote Action proudly. Go to like get involved, and you'll see like links to both national groups and state groups. And um, we really are trying to channel people as much as possible into state groups. And ideally, then those state groups are creating their own momentum that will include supporting the chances that we're trying to galvanize around congressional action and state action. Um, Of course, people can and we hope will uh, support Fair Vote uh, directly and Fair Vote Action and sign up, and we'll create opportunities for you to help out um, with things. But there really is a nice spectrum. Like, for instance, if, uh, if, if you're a college student, for instance, like there are now up to, I think we're very close to 100 colleges and universities where they have gone through a formal process to change their student body elections to ranked choice voting. Great. It's yeah. so cool. And a, a lot of uses of the Fair Representation Act approach. We've got maybe 15 to 20 that do the proportional uh, system as well. And that's been very organic very and, and impactful, you know, for 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 these student elections. So you'll have like ten, fifteen thousand people vote in some of the bigger universities that use this system. Um, your your NGO, there's something called go to rankit.vote and you can sort of set up your own contest with ranked choice voting. Um, and um, so anyway, lot, lots of things to do. Uh, certainly learning about it and helping us figure out the best way to talk about the Fair Representation Act and so on. But it is something that, for my excitement level. I would say going to this election, you know, you always feel nervous, right? It was on the ballot in 10 places, and some of those races seemed really close. A lot of money was being spent against in Portland, Oregon, say. And it just, you know, we didn't win all of them, but we won most of them. And almost every city campaign has won for five years now. We're up to some version of, like, 23 out of 25 cities or something that have voted on it. So it's not a slam dunk, but you have to, you know, pick your targets, but it definitely can The voters like it, Rob. As soon as you get it, I mean, when I was in Nevada, too, uh, I'm so pumped that Nevada. (laughs) (laughs) Because both parties came out against it, and, again, I was there when the Dems were, were, in my opinion, just trying to to scare people. Uh, It it was messed up. Um, But the, the, the will of the people... Uh, one out. And when people use ranked choice voting, they love it. You, you've been helping make it possible for millions of Americans. You are one of the unsung heroes of American democracy. And if we make it through this period, Rob Ritchie's going to be a big reason why. Fair vote, fair vote action. Check them out. Uh, again, imagine getting into this stuff in 1992 and uh, look at where we are now. You've done incredible work, my friend. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, 
greatly appreciate that. I'm so excited about where, where we are and what we all can do together. Four and six and 24. Four and six and 24. <laughs> Let's go.